Welcome to Global Voices, the critical knowledge podcast, loud and clear from the world to you. With Global Voices, we aim to bring together experts, activists, and students for forward thinking and cross-boundary discussions about topics of global relevance. I'm Sasha Husenbeet, and I study social psychology and international studies at Roskilde University in Denmark. And I'm happy to uh, introduce you to our podcast. The environmental changes wrought by the coronavirus are hard to miss. Global carbon emissions have fallen substantially, giving us an insight into what the world could look like without fossil fuels. The unprecedented restrictions on travel, work and industry due to the coronavirus has ensured several days with good quality air in our otherwise choked cities. Pollution is also considerably down across the continents. Wildlife has returned to places. Is this just a fleeting event or could it lead to longer lasting changes? We discuss this today with our two special guests. The first is Professor T. Jairaman, who is a senior fellow of climate change at the M. Swaminathan Research Foundation in Chennai in India. He was a professor at the School of Habitat Studies at Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Mumbai. Um, he's a theoretical physicist and his interests include climate change and policy, economics of climate change, climate change and agriculture. Our second guest is Dr. Tamara Steger, a professor of environmental justice and politics at the Central European University now in Austria. She looks at social justice movements and politics and the environment. Uh, we welcome both of you to the show. Uh, I would start with TJ. Uh, Given the theme of our episode today, could you tell a little more about the ecological impact that is going to take place because of the lockdown? Uh, good evening or good morning, uh, depending on where you are. And uh, let me uh, first thank you for having me on your podcast. Now, uh, I am quite firmly uh, of the view that uh, uh, the uh, environmental changes uh, uh, which are in any case quite moderate, quite limited that you see around you are definitely fleeting. So it is not as if that we have not had uh, occasions where for uh, several days uh, of the order of two or three days there has been no traffic and so on. In India, we are very familiar with uh, political situations where uh, uh, there is a general strike called in the city, there is no traffic. So this kind of thing does happen. So this, uh, of course, is uh, extended on an unprecedented scale. Uh, we have had no public transport in uh, my city of Chennai in India for something like uh, uh, more than a month now. It's about 30, uh, five, 39 or 40 days that we haven't had the public transport. So there are a number of such things which make for less pollution. Uh, there are, uh, uh, that is only one part of it. I think, however, and you know, there are uh, a lot of uh, uh, images that you see particularly on the net, on social media, 
about uh, there's a you know penguins walking down the middle of Cape Town, deer walking through small communities, uh, leopards roaming on uh, uh, campuses uh, in Mumbai. But I think these uh, some of them are actually fake. So let's be clear about that. But uh, even where they are not a majority of them uh, speak to changes that are uh, absolutely fleeting. So to think of the uh, current pandemic as having brought about any lasting environmental change is, uh, I think, uh, quite substantially incorrect. It has made us think about the environment in very important ways. And I think one must not underestimate uh, the importance of that or one must weigh the kind of uh, impact it has had. But uh, has it impacted the environment? My real answer is uh, no. So maybe uh, since that was your question, I'll, I'll stop here and uh, wait for my uh, colleague to say what uh, express her opinion and we could go on. Thank you, thank you. And thank you for inviting us for this discussion. Um, I think, uh, I mean, I, I generally certainly agree with TJ about uh, um, what the implications are for the long term. Will we have some sweeping changes in terms of how we operate? Um, I'm not so sure either. There's a lot of discussion about how soon can we get back to normal and so on. And I think there's a lot of references to the economy um, in that, hidden in that or very explicit in that. Um, but uh, something that I think uh, that we can't really go back to thinking about things the way we used to with such a global event as this. And when it comes to the environment, I think this is an opportunity to uh, reconsider how we've been thinking about it and defining it, that we see now um, how interconnected we are. And we're um, all facing uh, this issue, albeit in very different ways, mind you, and especially when it comes to inequalities, which are now exacerbated under these circumstances. However, I think uh, that the environment, um, it's a time for us to reconceptualize clearly and, 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 and make uh, um, headway on understanding that the environment is not something that is out there and that surrounds us, um, but rather we are enmeshed and it's dynamic and flowing and um, that that it's this sort of living biopermeability uh, that we experience. And, um, and the impacts, I think, also reveal a lot about that as well. Uh, there was just this, I, I just read something recently about this research at Stanford University um, by Marshall Burke, who found that, um, that the lives saved from local pollution reductions um, in, and he did the study in China, of course, using the data there. So the reductions exceed uh, COVID-19 deaths um, in China and potentially the global death toll from the virus. 
So in other words, the impacts of our ongoing um, polluting activities have a far greater impact on premature death than COVID-19. At least that's the implication um, from his study, which I find interesting. And it's, so it's a, it's a real moment for us to pause and think about the way we're living and the impacts that that have on, on everything. Um, so uh, whether or not where we go from here, um, this is a moment. This is a moment. This is an opportunity, um, as is every crisis, where we can see where we want to go from here, maybe have a moment to reflect um, as things have slowed down and, um, and think about where we want to go from here. And we can already see some indication of that, that uh, unfortunately, um, some sort of see this, this crisis as, a, as an opportunity to take advantage. So for example, weaken environmental laws um, or standards. Um, and um, it reveals a lot about our, uh, our governance regimes, if you will. So, um, you know, will they take advantage by taking opportunities to insert harsher, uh, further controls? Or will they reveal something about their capacities to take care of the people and to address inequalities which are further exacerbated under these circumstances? So, um, I, I, what do you Thank think you about <laughs> Thank you, Shreya. Yeah, I was uh, wondering if PJ would like to respond to what Tamara spoke right now. Uh, I think uh, uh, we are uh, sort of, uh, both of us, I think, uh, uh, I think have a lot of uh, similar uh, concerns because uh, uh, now perhaps uh, the way I would uh, look at it, uh, is that uh, one of the issues that uh, uh, bothers me in the discourse that is built up around the pandemic is the use of the word uh, use of the word we so there was this wit on facebook who wrote saying that you know uh, when what happens to the poor happens also to the rich, then they start talking about how we have a problem. So I think that kind of expresses uh, some of the concerns, is quite wittily, some of the concerns we have. So uh, the uh, first point to note about our reaction to the pandemic in all areas of uh, uh, activity or uh, social or public life and that will apply to the way we deal with the environment is that uh, it uh, it is not a moment where uh, inequalities have been submerged in the need to be together so in fact uh, Inequalities have been exacerbated. Inequalities condition the response to the pandemic crisis in all societies. Uh, 
the uber rich if you will have retreated into a sort of uh, silence uh, peppered by um, uh, i have nothing against it noble acts of uh, <coughs> charity and so on but the fundamental reasons why we live in an unequal world and a grossly unequal world at that have not changed the way uh, that i is something in this uh, kind of overflowing of the togetherness that is uh, hyped up so much i think we should really uh, cast if i may say so a baleful eye uh, on that kind of uh, smoothing over inequality unfortunately even where the message is one genuinely of togetherness and i am very struck by say the example of new zealand like the new zealand prime minister and she has done by all accounts a, a marvelous job of leadership etc but you see in the whole discourse that comes around it even though she herself talks of we a 5 million team etc referring to the population of new zealand nevertheless all the focus is on her so across the world it is the quality of the individual leadership and there are exceptions i think uh, in uh, kerala you know in uh, india uh, there's a lot of writing publicly about it now even internationally it is ruled by a left party coalition led by one of the two of the communist parties in the country i think what really is distinctive there is that even though the chief minister who's the head of government in the province uh, is a, a, a leader in the sense that you see everywhere but i think they have managed to create a wave of uh, uh, civil society involvement not just civil society very often that just a code word for ngos is not just that i mean it really the initiative led by popular local regional self governing uh, government institution so it's not ngos who are doing it is not volunteerism but there is a structured setup of initiative that arises at various levels and uh, that i think is a very distinctive experience for most of the rest of the world it is charitable organizations politely referred to as civil society uh, there are ngos of course they, uh, their, their motivations are excellent i mean i have no quarrel with that but it is still the leaders uh, centralized leadership and uh, voluntary action funded by the rich is not as if the poor are the ones funding the ngos and i think uh, this is not a great model for the future and uh, so uh, it is not very clear in terms of uh, uh, the world that we live in how we will organize and go about dealing with it uh, whether indeed an emergency of this kind 
and I really refer to it in parallel with the talk of climate emergency, whether the term emergency is really uh, something uh, that points the way forward. So that's uh, it's sort of a reflection. Uh, I have been writing about this on social media elsewhere. So that's something that's uh, uh, quite a bit on my mind in this chapter. Yeah, I mean, what I can discern from something that Tamara has said, but also from, from, from your point, um, reminds me of something that um, was uh, a central quote in the introduction of uh, the last semester project that I've been involved in last semester about the Anthropocene. And it goes like this, it says, the, in the Anthropocene, one needs to simultaneously recognize the integrative dimension of the problem, which is the aggregated impact of human action became a geological force, and the differentiated dimension of the real human life, which is that not all contributed equitably to its historical construction, and that not all equally experienced its consequences, not in the same shape or degree. In a sense, the new environmental reality unifies the whole of humanity, and in another, there is a visceral inequality. This is from Padua, who's a Brazilian scholar. And um, this, this, this seems to me to be a really central um, kind of sociological observation that um, if we're looking at the Anthropocene as a term, um, it makes it seem like there's one actor, which is human beings, and in a way it kind of obscures um, or makes at least, it makes necessary uh, to emphasize very much that in fact it's not one actor, uh, it's a whole lot of different actors that are stratified and that, that in a way hold each other back and oppress each other and these kinds of things. And so <clears throat> this is for Tamara a question. Um, what do you think uh, about the term Anthropocene? Do you think it's helpful or do you think it kind of conflates or, or um, obscures um, human beings into um, an undifferentiated uh, one actor that is not in fact one? Or do you think we should become one actor? How, how, how do you, what do you think about that? Uh, again, I, I see this as um, that uh, it's, uh, it's really a, uh, one of the debates that this issue is highlighted in is the debate about culture and, and nature. And um, I really don't see the, the, these things as separate, but rather mutually formative, if you will. And so I do see it as an interactive dynamic. And I think uh, thinking of it that way, um, opens up different ways of how, of how um, things evolve. I, I agree with TJ about this idea of we. I mean, certainly, you know, my we is different from other people's we, if you will. Uh, and, I, and, and I feel very fortunate, especially when I, you know, um, compare my situation to, to um, a good part of the world. Um, and people who, um, not to say that I don't have my own struggles, but relatively speaking, there are tremendous struggles in um, and around the world that, um, you know, that's a whole other we in a way 
from, from my we, if you think about it. However, um, I want to make a distinction about that, that, uh, um, that uh, yes, we don't experience this the same way. Um, and there are multiple we's. Uh, and however, uh, it is um, an interactive, um, intertwined uh, dynamic process uh, that all of us are engaged in, not in the same way. Um, I want to emphasize that, not in the same way, not with the same experience or impacts or benefits to all, that's, that's for sure. Um, and uh, I mean, even recently in the United States, they are finding that black Americans are uh, suffering quite a bit more um, than uh, white Americans are from this, uh, this tragedy. And, um, and sadly, that's not surprising. Uh, and it has to do with a whole host of issues, um, you know, at which the heart of is, is discrimination and racism. So, um, so I wanna make a distinction about there is, we are interconnected, all of us, in, and not just human beings, um, but living and non-living. Uh, interconnected in this in this process, um, but yes, not uh, not the same by any any stretch of the imagination. Uh, so, do I find I find the Anthropocene word to be an interesting one to think about things and and uh, you know try to grapple with this way of understanding our world as an intertwined process that is dynamic and mutually formative. Um, and, uh, you know, with uh, multi-species agency, um, I think it's, it's a, a move in the right direction to have these kinds of discussions um, that we cannot uh, isolate uh, anything from everything else. And so, um, so I think that's an important way to, to think about this. And um, yeah, and that we, I, I do feel, you know, we keep having to use the word we anyway, <laughs> but, uh, um, and, but it's always a good question. What do you, who is the we? Um, but uh, I do think that um, there is, uh, that uh, there is, um, I want to say something about responsibility. I'm, I'm not sure how to go forward with that. And certainly those in political positions uh, certainly have uh, responsibility uh, in a way that um, uh, others maybe don't have. However, I do see that there is a role for, for um for everything in this, there is a role. And uh, so, you, you bring up good the, question. Thank you, Sasha. Good question. Thank you. <laughs> you, you bring up the term agency, and then you kind of hint at the idea that agency is not simply or only a human um, ability, but that, that there might be agencies or that there are agencies um, that are non human. And um, this is quite a metaphysical. Um, observation 
which makes me which makes me think of of TJ because my initial reaction when I saw that you are a, a theoretical physicist was uh, to wonder what kinds of uh, what kinds of thoughts and what kinds of uh, contributions um, we can we can take from this abstract phys physics about about things themselves and how they change. And this is a very vague, vague way of putting it, but um, yes, uh, just. Uh, actually, uh, I didn't object at the beginning, but uh, I have not done physics for uh, now close on 17 or 18 years. I've not done physics, meaning I was professionally a physicist. I taught physics. Uh, I did uh, research in theoretical physics. I have uh, a couple of PhD students who got their degrees with me, but I have not done physics uh, for quite some time. And much of my engagement recently, uh, especially with the environment, has been uh, precisely in this area of uh, culture and environment. So the way we think about the environment has some impact uh, on the way we act on the environment. Though I would caution that, you know, if you just leave it here, then it begs the question of uh, where do our ideas about the environment come from? And so I think they do come from uh, the anthropologists would say material culture, I would prefer uh, the rather old-fashioned term uh, practice or uh, whatever, but we are roughly talking of the same thing. So uh, when I think about the two points I want to make here in response to uh, Tamara's observations, uh, one is, uh, see, on the face of it, uh, Anthropocene well, you know, is one of these buzzwords you create and you know there are plenty of buzzwords around i'm not going to grudge people a new buzzword but i think there is a very problematic uh, point here and that is the erasure of all that we have learned about society sociology economics and all these other things about the world social and the natural world, but somehow the argument is we are in a new age and these don't somehow come. So I've had a lot of engagement with the IPCC and uh, there is a real problem with the way they deal with things. So they'll talk about climate and development. Marshall Burke from Stanford is a great example. And it is as if climate and development begins with the IPCC. So the IPCC has said there is in fact a 150 year literature in anthropology, for instance, which engages with uh, uh, the uh, material culture and the environment. And this goes back to Lewis Morgan, it influenced Marx. There's all kinds of work which has been done. But the most you'll get in the IPCC out of all of this mountain is a little molehill called behavioral economics. 
So this uh, Anthropocene becomes in the climate and environmental discourse a kind of erasure of uh, uh, all that we have learned so far and it's setting aside. So when we talk about the we and differentiating the we, so let's go back to old-fashioned sociology, social stratification and in India as uh, Shreya would recognize immediately, uh, stratification is caste, class and gender. There it is, and right in front of you. So I think uh, the problematic aspect of the of this totalizing term, you know, is not a term I like very much, but uh, it is very appropriate. Yeah? Anthropocene is the, used in the discourse as a totalizing term, which I find problematic. Now, is very similar. At least you know when you had earlier. Uh, Ulrich Beck, for instance. Ulrich Beck uh, was at least frank about it. It was open. And he said, okay, we had earlier industrial society, and there the divisions were based on class. Uh, the uh, risks were all to do with uh, livelihoods, incomes, employment, physical well-being, etc. And this is behind us. So now what we have ahead of us uh, the second modernity, if you wish, and uh, reflexive modernization a la Giddens. So he said we have the risk society. So the risk society is that people are differentiated not on these questions, but on the basis of risk. Now the pandemic should put an end to that kind of simplistic uh, feelings about the risk society. When you see how risk is actually uh, physically manifest in the way uh, it affects the lives of people. So, uh, so I, I, I have a, uh, I certainly, is, uh, if I may say so, uh, this uh, celebration of the young, the greater Thunberg phenomenon. You know, I, I think it is fine. I mean, you know, people should, uh, if uh, you take a role in it, is very important. But uh, there is a very uncomfortable relationship between uh, the powers that be and uh, uh, in the neoliberal era, if I may say so, and this celebration of youthfulness, which again, I think, has to do with the erasure of our historical memory, uh, the memory of our academic life, the scholarship that the world has seen on all these questions and they are posed here as if we are asking them for the first time. So I think uh, one must be, uh, this is in this sense that I'm a little wary of the discourse of the Anthropocene. As far as physics and the physical sciences are concerned, they have their place. So for instance, uh, uh, as I often tell my students in class, uh, you know, if you're walking down the road, uh, uh, a human being is hardly the sum total of uh, his or her uh, skeleton, muscle mass and brain weight. You know, so you are hardly simply a physical collect, uh, agglomeration is uh, defining a human being. But if you are in a motor accident, that is what determines whether you live or not. Your physical structure. If your physical structure is damaged, 
beyond repair, you don't survive. So I think the physical is the skeleton of the world. And so the physical sciences inform us of the skeleton of the world. And so, you know, like you need orthopedics for human bodies, you need physics for the world. But I think that hardly, uh, you know, exhausts either nature or uh, the social. However, there is another aspect I just want to touch on here about the agency. Now, I am really, I must say, a strong skeptic of the idea of multi-species agency. Uh, I think we mistake uh, this. You can see it in a lot of pandemic writing. People write of the wily virus. You know, this uh, virus that is hard to defeat. So you anthropomorphize the virus. That has nothing to do with, uh, it has no conscience, it's not a sentient being. Uh, it's just uh, RNA, you can put it in a test tube. You know, like uh, the famous example, students learn like the tobacco mosaic virus. You put it in a test tube, it will sit there. Uh, like a crystal, transparent, nothing will happen. You put it on a tobacco leaf, it will multiply with amazing rapidity and destroy the plant. So, do you call that agency? I don't think so. Uh, there is some amount of programmed action as uh, you go through the evolutionary chain. Uh, there is, uh, you know, the biologist Ernst Meyer used to call it uh, the teleonomic uh, capacity. It's not teleological, but teleonomic. So there is, but these are uh, hardwired, if I may say so. Agency is the property of humanity. And therefore, what we have before us in the Anthropocene, if I may use those words, is we must realize the extent of our responsibility to nature. So, so, you know, we have reached a point where we transform the world around us as in climate change. So we have to recognize who we are. We cannot relapse into theology. Oh my God, don't open, don't open the Pandora's box of viruses in these deep, dark forests where biodiversity is preserved. I mean, I think, I, don't, I think that kind of discourse is pretty useless, even though it comes from a lot of biologists. Nor can we say foolishly, Trump-like, oh, it doesn't matter, let's get back to work, guys. You know, we're going to die, some of us will die anyway, and it's suddenly less than the people from the Spanish flu. So I don't think either extreme is correct, but we need to take charge of the fact that we need to be become aware of the fact, self-reflexively of the fact that we are now in many ways in charge of nature. And we have been for a long time, but we are so in an incredibly powerful way. And uh, so it's a give and take process and we, it is something you have to go ahead. There's no going back. And uh, sometimes I, I, am con I am very concerned that uh, the talk of, uh, uh, of multi-species agency or uh, stuff like, you know, actor network theory, where even the 
inanimate pushes back, so to speak. Uh, I'm really not a fan uh, uh, of those kinds of thought. Uh, I do not find them productive uh, in the task of going forward. Let me stop here. Uh, if I can, I, I would like to respond then maybe to some of these points. Uh, yes, the Anthropocene as a, as a buzzword, um, we're always coming up with new ones and sometimes they look the same as the old things we've been doing in a way, although perhaps there is some part of that also that where we forget where we've been or somehow it attempts to erase where we've been. And I, I think that's, uh, that's a very, um, that's a concern. I, it made me think while you were talking about uh, Arturo Escobar's work, where he talks more about history and the biophysical, um, because I think history is very important. Um, you know, it, it's, um, it's, uh, it's the processes by which we come to be where we are now. Um, and uh, not to say that it's deterministic, um, but very powerful. And uh, so um, that was a good point, I think, that you made about the term Anthropocene. Um, I do wanna say though that uh, this idea of our skeleton, that yes, uh, it sounds very straightforward that if something happens to our bodies, then that's it. Um, but uh, something you said earlier um, also acknowledges um, spirituality. To say that we are merely physical as well as, you know, yeah, it seems to reduce us uh, in a way that um, maybe some would agree with and maybe others wouldn't. I don't know. So I think that there's lots of different ways to think about, about uh, existence. And um, yeah, the idea of the virus, so or or multi-species agency and so on. That um, it, I think what that indicates is that okay, yeah. On the one hand, there's an anthropomorphization of the virus and the way that it's talked about, but I think that only shows us that the virus is culturally embedded, and I'm sure that the way that it's anthropomorphized is different. Um, in different parts of the world and, and by different people. Um, uh, I was thinking when you said, so, you know, this issue, this question about agency and following through on that, um, that uh, is it, a, you know, the property of humanity? I, I, um, I don't agree. And I, I don't think the distinction is that in every other case, it's hardwired, but not in our case, as if humans were somehow special um, or um, superseded that idea. But not to say that I think that every living thing is hardwired. No, no, on the contrary, I think that, uh, um, I think again, I wanna emphasize this inner activity um, and emergence um, through that intertwined existence. Um, so I think that's a question, right? That, uh, so every other living thing is hardwired, but human beings as, as bodies are, are um, or as agency is something else. So 
that's a question to think about. Um, yeah, and yeah, yeah, I appreciate that you mentioned, so there's the Pandora's box, um, you know, versus the Trump idea. Um, and you said that uh, um, this idea of, of needing, we need to take charge and self-reflexivity. Um, and you mentioned the idea of being in charge of nature. Now, while I can appreciate that, yes, you, you look around and you go, wow, we certainly have been um, in charge in some ways. However, again, I want to come back to this idea of, of enmeshment and interactivity being intertwined and dynamic. Um, you know, you can certainly say that, well, you know, and there's anthropomorphization of that, uh, um, of those ideas as well, in terms of like, you think of hurricanes. So are we in charge there? And how do we talk about hurricanes and, and their quote unquote agency? Um, so, and who's, who's, or who or what is in charge ultimately uh, there? Um, but I don't want to ignore um, the sort of the impacts uh, that humans uh, have in this interactivity. Um, so, um, yeah, I, uh, so, yeah, I just wanted to reemphasize that, um, and, you know, how we understand the environment, uh, certainly, um, or how we think about it, certainly is related to how we interact within it, and um, as part of it, or, or maybe not, because I think uh, thinking of it as something separate has a huge impact. Thinking of nature as something out there and something that we're in charge of, I see that as very problematic. Um, and, and a hurricane need only remind us how humble we might be, or something as, as small as a virus, uh, so small and yet so powerful as well. Um, but I, I, I do want to say that too, as well, that I also feel the same way you do, that there is a responsibility here. And, um, uh, and that, uh, oh, I, yeah, that rather than thinking of, um, you mentioned something about, um, you know, you, um, you take a role in this. And I want to add to that, that we have a role. We are in a role already, already doing something that is either helping things move along or not or, or what, but inevitably by default, we are in a role of some kind. And um, I hope that, yeah, that reimagining um, or countering the discourse you mentioned practice or <laughs> or buzzwords i'm going to use the word discourse uh countering the discourse that the environment or natural resources is something separate that we're in charge of and there's a long history of talk about domination of nature and so on uh, i think uh, this is a good moment as many have been in the past to yet again maybe we can you know rethink that idea and find, um, uh, discover something more truthful about um, the place in all this. Um, 
I hear the. Uh, can I? Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, to uh, something, uh, the some of the issues that Tamara raised. I I I think uh, uh, I still have a problem. I think with uh, uh, the <clears throat> when uh, when I said in charge. Okay, uh, that is uh, you are in charge. Uh, Proviso the laws of nature. Like, for instance, you know, you, after all, you are not in charge of the You are not in charge of the law of gravity. As you jump out of the window from the fourth floor, uh, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. But, uh, That's gravity's agency. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, it just there, I think. But on the other hand, agency consists in the fact that we can build aeroplanes and then, of course, the law of gravity does not stop us from flying. It seems a very trite example, but I think it goes to the heart of the problem. That's one dimension of it. But I think another dimension that connects uh, uh, hurricanes to pandemics uh, together, uh, the hurricane to the virus, you know, this enormous several hydrogen bombs worth of uh, force and energy with this little, uh, you know, strip, you, uh, this collection of uh, atoms that you can cannot even see, you know, and uh, Still how yeah. it, uh, I don't want to say uh, anything to that. I don't, I didn't mean to imply no, that no, the no. hurricane is the same. A hurricane no, no. is the same as, okay. No, okay. no, 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 that's not what okay. I'm saying. But Thank I am you. saying that in fact, that there is a commonality here and that is the role of contingency. So the, so we are faced when we deal with nature, we talk about it as capricious nature and you know, and sometimes, of course, you know, uh, the, the perfect storm, people call the pandemic the perfect storm. And in fact, that is a metaphor taken out of the hurricane context. So, so I think, so uh, what we miss here is uh, our ability to deal with contingency. So when we are faced with accident, like uh, my uh, a very elderly Japanese colleague whom I had met in climate uh, negotiations, I wrote to him after the last uh, Japanese tsunami, you know, wondering whether he was well, he was safe, he was. And he replied speaking about the uh, puniness of uh, uh, the individual in the face of the fury of nature. It was a very common metaphor. But I think uh, that's okay. I mean, there is a place for that kind of uh, feeling. But I think more seriously, uh, philosophically or in the social sciences, you know, uh, you know, we must recognize their theological retreat. A theological retreat from facing up to the problem of contingency. So contingency is a part of human life. And like I said about motor accident, let it not be a motor accident that you are camped under a tree. I suppose you should not camp under a tree and the, uh, there's, uh, the bow breaks, it's an old tree. It falls on your head and uh, notwithstanding 
your brilliant, insightful career ahead of you. There it is at an end. I mean, I hate to put it so brutally, but I think this speaks to the way, uh, you know, uh, individuals, uh, cultures, societies react to the problem of uncertain. And I think uh, uh, we must account for the contingency of the world around us. And so you take the biologists, for instance, the environmentalists, many of them are after, oh, this is the moment we are going to have to stop every pandemic. You are never going to be able to stop every pandemic. He said the pandemics will become rarer. The pandemics will become more infrequent. And so this, uh, the fact that we have to, yes, reasonably, zoonosis, take care of uh, the uh, animal, uh, wildlife, human interaction, anim uh, human livestock, wildlife interaction, uh, uh, understand it. All of that is important, but uh, there is nevertheless going to be contingency. So I think uh, the environmentalist idea of the undisturbed ecosystem, I, I think frankly is... Uh, uh, you know, impossible to attain. And it is in this sense, I think on the one hand, we do have agency. So we are, I think, responsible for nature in a way that uh, we did not imagine before. But nevertheless, we are responsible in a sense, partly in an anthropomorphized way in sense, because it speaks to our own well-being. I mean, there is no well-being on Mars. And before there were the human species. I mean, there is no sense of well-being in the interaction of a lion and a deer. No? I mean, uh, monkeys, chimpanzees don't die in hospital, surrounded by grieving relatives. Their life prolonged to the extent possible by the advances of medical science, unless they are in a zoo. In the wild, there is no such thing. So we are responsible for nature when even when I say take care of nature, uh, I do recognize there is still a level of anthropomorphization implicit in that, but uh, because it speaks to our well-being. But beyond that, I think uh, uh, there is nowhere else to go. You know, there is one planet and there is one. Uh, yeah, yeah. So can you species. disconnect our well-being? Um, there's the our word with the we. <laughs> but human well-being um, and cultural well-being and so on, can you separate that from? No, I think uh, well, the good uh, Anything subject. Anything else? No, it's a good subject for investigation. I, I, I'm negative about it. It's this whole slogan of one health that you hear. You know, uh, very popular these days. Human health, animal health, and ecosystem health. Now, what exactly is the ecosystem health? The pristine, untouched ecosystem? The modified ecosystem? Which ecosystem? That's not very clear. I think it's a, the whole notion to me of ecosystem health is, uh, uh, seems to be incoherent. But on the other hand, you know, maybe I'm a fuddy duddy and the new generation uh, will figure out uh, how to deal with it. So, no, I, I mean, think it's more of a diverse diversity issue that well being is sort of. Uh, 
defined in place, if you will. So there's not a sort of singular idea about well-being for all is this necessarily, although we do have some, we do have common experiences, but I, I think well-being is, is a, is a, um, a place-making activity. Um, yeah, to be defined by in by many and in different places and in different ways. Well, I, I can I can hear. Sorry, Sasha, go ahead. Kinds of, certain <laughs> kinds of um, uh, things running through that that in fact that seem contra that seem like they are um, opposed, but that are actually not in a way, which is the the whole framework of of what what the human what the role of the human is um and and how to um how to conceptualize that um because i i do feel like we already have a framework with which to make sense of this role and and the the questions it's just a framework that has been because precisely because it's so important and so subversive and so uh central to the question of uh, modern emancipation which is marxism um has been you know um silenced or misrepresented or um forgotten and swept under the rug but um as as jayaraman has mentioned uh, marx has been very well aware of of the the dependency of capitalism on on destroying the destroying nature as well as other economists and, and historians for example Karl Polanyi who's of course been um, extremely influential uh, or especially recently now more influential in in uh, conceptualizing the idea that uh, that capitalism is foundationally built on the commodification of, among other things, nature. Um, and so I feel like the, the, the question that we've kind of been hovering around is the question of, of capitalism, the question of, of how do we organize our society economically and, um, and a question of power. Because when we talk about responsibility, really we're talking as well about power to some extent. So, um, I would like to know, um, I would like to ask both of you, um, to what extent do you think um, the current uh, corona pandemic might, to some, ex to, to some extent, uh, revitalize uh, emancipatory thought and action um, in, the, in the kind of Marxist framework or in the framework of uh, workers, uh, coming together and uh, exercising power uh, independently from whatever framework of power they are subject subjugated by, and I mean, uh, the, I, I really mm, don't mind who ta who takes up the question. Uh, maybe Jairaman, because I've mentioned you, or yeah, okay, Tamara, you can take the question. That's a good, that's, those are good points and good questions to, to think about. And, and yeah, coming back to um, the original theme of, of this discussion about uh, 
the environmental impacts of, of uh, COVID-19. Um, well, I, again, I, I think, um, yeah, the issue of production certainly is related to uh, pollution effects. And we can see that they uh, coincide significantly as, you know, production is reduced, pollution is reduced. Um, and, and that also certainly means, um, you know, and has meant that people are losing jobs especially those in precarious positions it's 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 uh it's a huge impact and given the way we're talking about the environment it's a huge impact on the environment because these people are in and part of that they're not separate uh from that and um and so um when we talk about impacts on the environment we're talking about yeah uh, the well-being of 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 existence. Um, and I'm sure TJ will have <laughs> something to, to say about that. Um, but uh, yeah, this is a question. So something that comes to my mind, Sasha, when you were talking about that and, and um, capitalism and so on, is that, you know, uh, at, at what point or in what way, who, who is benefiting from all of this production in a maximized way and who's who's losing or to what extent are we winning and losing um, that's why I brought up the Stanford University research because it's an interesting question isn't it that all of this production is creating um, actually reducing in some ways our you know our or it's contributing to premature deaths um, but not to acknowledge also that all of the advances in the medical field have have also prolonged our lives in many ways um, but are we living the way that in a way that is uh, um, conducive to our well-being and that's a question so it it doesn't you know it doesn't as you know there's lots of discussion about whether that puts production into question or not um, or can we just have green production? Um, and that's a really important discussion. Um, but uh, I think it's clear too, I wanna um, come back to the other issue in the beginning of the discussion as well, that pollution definitely impacts uh, people differently and across those traditional lines, as TJ mentioned, of race, class, and gender, that's for sure. And we see that's the case also with this, uh, with this virus. So, um, yeah, so how things will evolve, I, I don't know. But uh, I think seeing, um, again, seeing these things as intertwined and enmeshed uh, creates the possibility perhaps for more well-being um, rather than less and um yeah so tj maybe you have some i really you know i uh, don't always uh, use the label marxist because though i love the old man and i you know i really love you know reading you know i think uh, uh, the ultimate intellectual experience in many ways is to be able to sit down and 
understand Marx, but I don't call myself a Marxist because a lot of people who call themselves Marxists have so many opinions that I completely and thoroughly disagree. So let me say on uh, just uh, because of the academic background to our discussion that I'm very unsympathetic to this uh, 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 the way people like David Harvey, uh, John Bellamy Foster, and uh, in the pop version, Naomi Klein, etc., have conceptualized this issue of capitalism in the environment. So I, I think uh, what to me fundamentally is mistaken. What, what uh, are you, if I could ask quick, uh, just in between there, what issues do you have with those thinkers? Like, David I, I'm Harvey. just coming to that. Ah, okay. Okay. To, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Hey, yeah. So I think my problem, uh, and it is most focused uh, with uh, uh, their uh, admiration of this uh, book, in which they are collectively all together. Perhaps not Harvey so much about this uh, book called "Big Farms, Big Flu," very popular. And uh, I think Sasha referred to that implicitly about Marx and exploitation of nature, etc. Marx, uh, you must remember, uh, you must not take him literally on agriculture because as he partly consciously realized, he lived before the industrial revolution in agriculture truly came to be. So fertilizer was just on the horizon. And uh, the nitrogen cycle had barely been understood. Uh, the breeding and etc. Darwin had just arrived. And you know, so all of the advances that make for modern agriculture as we know it today as a science and a technology was before it. So uh, there is, I think, uh, there is uh, not sufficient recognition of this fact, I think, in this literature. So Marx spoke of a metabolic rift, but uh, Marx, the, unlike many other things, he did not argue how exactly it was to be resolved. And uh, I'm sure, uh, you know, part of the reason was the fact that the science of the times were certainly not up to it. Now we have a much better understanding of global geochemical cycles. And uh, what is it that are the problem uh, and the, the, even the potential means of overcoming them are now available to us through many new technologies. So like, for instance, if you want to reduce the fertilizer intake, you could do other things. You could re-engineer the plant, for instance, genetic engineering is certainly possible. But many of these people now, you know, the, the problem is about understanding production, as Tamara quite rightly pointed out. Production and who benefits from production. See, I think the classical distinction between the production of objects and their use for various purposes and the, uh, these products or the process of production as generating value, wealth, and uh, profit, and uh, accumulation thereof, I think these have to be kept relatively separate. 
the problem of environmental uh, ecological economics if you wish in a sense like Herman, Dali, etc., is to conflate the two completely. The two are related, like we find out now in the coronavirus crisis. You can have all the money you want in the world, but if you can't make masks, you are done for. You know? So you have the Americans rushing off the uh, where it is and trying to pirate masks out of China. So you do need goods, and they are the physical foundation of living. But I think uh, what has happened in this uh, strain of Marxist debate is that you separate production and why production is necessary. And with that science and technology, you completely conflate it to use Marxist language with the relations of production. So I think uh, on the one hand, I think production will not cease. I'm not a fan of degrowth. In India, if you just step out of the door, I think degrowth makes no sense. You know, the fact that the material needs of well-being are not met for vast sections of people across the world is a reality, and one has to deal with it. But on what? But term, maybe maybe degrowth doesn't mean that. Maybe degrowth for some doesn't mean that. You're well, well, you know, <laughs> we, we'd have to have a whole new discussion on that. And uh, okay, and yeah, yeah. I <laughs> so, so I think uh, to rec to separate the two, you know, if you are looking at it from a Marxist viewpoint, is I think uh, important. A relative separation is not an absolute separation, uh, and therefore I think. Uh, uh, that is uh, what is at issue. Unfortunately, uh, do we live in, a, are we in a transformatory moment where uh, capitalism will be called into question as uh, many people, I, I think uh, Sasha has this hope, I would hope too, but regrettably I don't think so. Take yeah. Mr. Boris Johnson, for, he is responsible for, if you ask me, for so many people dying. And uh, they could have done much better, but his approval rating is 60%. Mr. Trump, uh, you know, I keep my fingers crossed, I hope against hope, Mr. Trump is going to win. Mr. Modi in uh, India uh, is certainly extremely popular with the measures he is taking. Though in the uh, intellectual policy, even economists, bankers, everybody, they are massively critical of the way the uh, government of India is handling particularly the economic fallout of the COVID-19 and the response measures. But he's going to win. So much as I would have it, uh, as I would like to agree with Sasha, I don't think we live in a transformatory moment. But on the other hand, perhaps this moment will open our eyes, say, like uh, to the uh, role of public health and the National Health Service in Britain. That's a wonderful development. Only thing is, Mr. Boris Johnson is going to put the money into it and going to win the election to boot. So, so I think, uh, I hope people will... Uh, uh, think ahead and, you know, uh, the idea of uh, uh, a just and equal world, I think, is uh, 
is something uh, that is brought home to us uh, for uh, in the uh, times of the pandemic and uh, that's uh, uh, all of us uh, react like that but uh, there are several of those who control our destinies uh, in terms of economic and social power who do not think so so i hope uh, uh, if it is not a moment of transformation, at least if it were a moment of awakening, I think uh, that would be a jolly good thing to have. <laughs> okay. Um, so I kind of missed a bit while I was figuring out the laptop situation, but then I heard phrases of what happened and um, I'm getting a lot of phrases. Uh, oh, sorry, thoughts. Uh, I just wanted to shift the conversation a bit about um, so when you mention uh, things like who benefits or are we winning and uh, the different responsibilities so I wanted uh, both of your opinions you could go in any order about uh, what you think would happen to um, the Paris agreement and the CBDR and other such agreements and fundings that we have right now after, because of the lockdown hey, yeah okay uh, uh, I think uh, uh, what is practical terms, what is happening is that the climate negotiations have moved online. Uh, you know, the dialogue at least is moving online. Uh, 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 if you look at the uh, first uh, important statement from the Secretary General of the UNFCCC, uh, Patricia Espinosa, uh, she said very clearly that the pandemic and climate change are two different problems. So I am most grateful, you know, because conflating the two is, I think, uh, not uh, uh, helpful. So I think uh, uh, there is a lot of talk in uh, Europe, obviously, about green recovery. It because there has to, because the economy is in a state of uh, uh, deep crisis, it is very rarely that uh, uh, in an in economies across the world, both demand and supply have failed simultaneously. You have had demand problems, you had supply problems, or if both fail, you had it in only part of the world. Now across the world, we are having a failure of both demand and supply. Now, uh, in such a situation, uh, is green recovery the way to go? This will be debated. In India, I don't think it is the way to go. I think uh, uh, our economic situation is truly dire, uh, though the government seems not to wake up to it. The uh, government of India thinks that this is a transformatory moment in terms of large-scale structural economic reforms, uh, which include also a generous dose of uh, economic and political decentralization. All of these are not good portents for the future. So I think also that uh, privileging say, renewable energy over coal in the revival process uh, would drive our uh, electricity tariffs and our cost of energy through the roof. It's already quite one of the highest in the world. 
so it will drive it through the roof with the large scale effects on the economy which are really frankly a bit unpredictable so i think uh, you know you don't uh, you know suppose somebody uh, what should i say uh, falls down due to ill health uh, caused by his diet the first thing you do is to go and revive the patient you don't send the dietitian as the first person to the talk to the person who has uh, fallen down because uh, you know of uh, an illness caused by malnutrition or something so i think uh, we need to get the economy back on our feet in developing countries india certainly china and india are not comparable in that respect so uh, for us i think this uh, is the way we should look at the paris agreement uh, so uh, if you uh, in europe this will be debated but on the other hand if there they have deeper pockets there are better opportunities there's uh, more capacity so if they could make it a green movement uh, that would be welcome i am not saying no but on the other hand the idea that this is universally a green movement for the entire world at one go that i would be resistant so i think uh, uh, a lot depends uh, when this uh, pandemic uh, eases off economic recovery will take quite a bit of while and so we have to wait and watch how the uh, climate scene evolves but i don't think uh, is going to be dramatically pushed back is not going to be any substantially worse shape than it already but this emissions reduction of one year or six months etc don't bet on it it's the cumulative emissions which matter and this uh, momentary decline in emissions is not particularly uh, you know i wouldn't write home about that yeah yeah i i i agree i do think though it's quite uh, profound to to see that uh, um, what the impacts are in terms of pollution and the the major reductions in uh, pollution during this time have been really profound in some places um, and um, you know from the transportation sector uh, from power plants and and some other industrial uh plants and uh um you know which has studies are showing the air quality is going up so so we do know um we do know that um but i i agree whether that's a transformative moment where we might realize wow it's wonderful not having so much pollution in our lives um if we could still have jobs and everything that would be good too <laughs> um so uh but um i want to say though that there is a very i think there is an important connection to be made here between um uh you know uh, climate change or pollution issues and the pandemic and that is that pollution affects the immune system and um or at least our immune system capacities 
So there's a very strong link between the kind of exposure we have or the degree of risk that we have in terms of toxin exposure and how well we can fend off something uh, like this, like this virus. And I think that's another reason why certain, um, you know, subordinated or, or um, marginalized groups also have a higher impact because they also tend to be exposed to more toxins and pollution. So their immune systems may not be um, as strong as someone who has uh, um, less exposure. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I think, and you know, as I think I've already made the point repeatedly, I'm, I'm for interconnecting because I, I think that things are very much connected. I agree with you that how connected they are, that is a good question to ask. But, uh, um, yeah, to delink things, I see that as highly problematic. When you start separating things and isolating them, then yeah, the connections become invisible, and there are there are connections. It's all it's all interconnected. <laughs> Just one point, Tamara. Though uh, I would still uh, uh, like to see uh, the uh, evidence for uh, uh, pollution exposure being related to uh, uh, susceptibility to COVID-19. Because I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, they simply live uh, more densely together. It may not be pollution. Uh, there are all kinds of lifestyle disease, non-communicable diseases that present uh, vulnerability. So I think the pollution link, uh, I would say, at least as far as I'm concerned, the jury is out on that until uh, the evidence is in. It certainly, uh, it is a respiratory illness, so it is natural to seek a connection with uh, uh, respiratory stress as it comes from pollution. But uh, this is uh, an odd business. The fact that it affects the lung, the manner of its affecting and pollution. I think uh, uh, I, would, I would wait for the jury to come out. You know, I'm sure we'll, we'll see more of that as we go along. So you don't see a connection between um, pollution and the immune system? And the uh, immune system I and the virus? See uh, what I can and recovery. Say let's let's think about recovery rates in terms of COVID nineteen. Uh, no, no. For capacity. instance, uh, is it proximity or pollution that determines the infectivity? So uh, you can ask or exposure, exposure and risk. Uh, but mm -hmm. Exposure and risk. That I think we have to check, and I, I don't think it's very clear. So, for instance. Uh, uh, are the uh, uh, infected fatality rates uh, the same in uh, rural areas or uh, uh, urban uh, polluted areas? Depend, but it depends on, uh, you know, uh, one has to control for the fact that population sizes are different. 
sample sizes are different. So once you control for all their factors, is clean air really a guarantee that you won't get it? Okay. The fact that yeah, you well, of course not. But you know, there is higher incidence of. So we know that um, COVID nineteen yeah, is more dangerous for those with asthma and heart disease, and we do know, for example, that asthma is associated um, with risk exposure and also higher in poorer populations. Uh, but but I think that there again, uh, I would say that. Uh, uh, certainly pollution is exacerbating asthma, okay? And uh, so the poverty asthma relation, is it to do uh, with the inability to access asthma cure or is it per se to do with pollution? And I, I think one has to figure that out properly. Like for instance, uh, uh, the most, uh, see, let me put it this way. Uh, 15, 20 years ago, the New York Times carried an extensive series, uh, something like eight, ten uh, stories on the link between asthma in black populations in New York City and the conditions that they lived in. And it had nothing to do with air pollution. It was uh, apartments which were uh, stuffy, meaning there were uh, sofas and furniture which was uh, had mites in them, microorganisms, and this would set off allergic reactions. So the squalid, dense uh, uh, housing and the nature of the damp and uh, air and uh, the, uh, the conditions they lived inside were responsible. It was not uh, industrial pollution. And uh, the, so unfortunately now uh, in India, if you, Delhi, you ask someone to do a study, the first thing they'll go for is air pollution. I agree. This is the biggest thing. But uh, whether the same is true in other places, I don't know. So I think uh, uh, one, uh, there are connections very clearly, but the manner and nature of connections, etc. So it's not as if, the, the point I'm trying to say is the larger point, <coughs> that look, pollution, less pollution is good, it helps our immunity, we, we are better off at dealing with pandemics. I think uh, it's too easy a message. But, but we need to figure more about that before... Too easy uh, or too difficult? Too difficult no, to I message. Think, <laughs> no, no, I, I don't think so. I, I think we can message it. But I think uh -huh. uh, we need to, uh, we need to uh, sort of uh, ensure that we have the evidence in on that. That's all. Yeah, I, I understand, yeah, that asthma is associated with indoor conditions and so on. But from a respiratory standpoint, yeah. Definitely exposure to bad air has respiratory implications. Okay, uh, Tamara, if you want um, to make a quick remark, or maybe then we can proceed to the closing statements that you would like to give to all our listeners. Okay, um, I want to thank you again for this um, really good discussion. I really uh, appreciate this opportunity to um, meet TJ and have this discussion about, uh, we've gone 
down many pathways here, just starting with the environmental implications of COVID-19. But I think, uh, and I guess my closing remarks would be that uh, it reveals um, it reveals that um, this is, uh, uh, as TJ also said, it is a, you know, if it can't be a moment of transformation, it is certainly a moment of awareness and an opportunity for that. And uh, so an opportunity to think about a lot of different aspects of, of our existence. And uh, this has been a striking change in a lot of our lives um, all across the globe. So um, it is, it is uh, if it can't be a moment of transformation, as much as I hope it, it would be um, in the direction of more well-being across the world, um, then it is uh, a moment of awareness to understand uh, how, uh, yes, we are not all the same and we are not all the same we, <laughs> um, but we are very much in interconnected. And, um, and uh, this is, uh, I hope part of that awareness would be to understand that interconnectedness and, um, and to rethink uh, perhaps uh, how we understand um, the environment, not as, and understand it more maybe not as something that's separate, uh, but uh, very much something that we are a part of. And um, it's not out there, it's, it's in here. Thank you, thanks again. Thanks for, for the remarks and um, for joining. Um, TJ, how would you like to sum up uh, today's discussion? Uh, uh, let, let me join uh, Tamara in thanking you for this opportunity and uh, also for the opportunity to meet and uh, have this uh, discussion. Uh, so, so I think, uh, uh, you know, to... Uh, it was difficult to sum up, uh, you know, what has been a, a very interesting discussion and uh, we explored a lot of themes uh, or at least touched upon a lot of themes in what we said. So uh, perhaps uh, uh, one of the thought that, uh, a thought that, uh, uh, there are several thoughts that remain. So one perhaps prominent thought that uh, uh, remains with me is, uh, you know, what we were talking about, about the economy, etc. So, yes, uh, Sasha made a reference to Marx uh, somewhere in between, and I think one of Marx's great insights uh, was to see the uh, intrinsic aspect of labor to human society. So labor, you know, not in the sense of the production of value, but something uh, a more a historical, you know, or or rather that is possessed through uh, various historical periods. So I think uh, uh, labor production transforming the world is intrinsic to being human. We are the part of nature that is self-reflexive. I agree with Tamara in that sense. 
that it would be incorrect to talk of ourselves as outside of nature, but we are the part of nature that is self-reflexive. And perhaps it is in this sense that it is in our character to both transform the world and be responsible for it, uh, uh, its well-being. And its, uh, its well-being, uh, that relative separation, is also our uh, well-being, which is uh, the moment of uh, togetherness. Having said that, uh, I must also emphasize that uh, uh, in uh, my emphasis on uh, uh, not erasing the uh, differences and inequalities <coughs> of uh, the world as we have it today and its impact uh, in the era of the pandemic. But it is, uh, I don't also want to give any impression that I disdain solidarity. There is, I think, uh, uh, there is a commonality across the world in the vast majority of humanity who would like far more control of their lives. And that is the common thread across the world. And it is uh, uh, whether it takes place in a far more economically deprived situation, as in my country, or it takes place in uh, where material goods are much better, uh, much better endowed, as in Tamara's uh, environment but in all these places we see greater control greater say and greater sense uh, of direction over our lives and this i think uh, this common feeling inspires great solidarity and i think uh, there is also this very conversation that we had here today is i think uh, expression uh, of this uh, solidarity that is so essential. And one day perhaps we will see that uh, untainted or far less tainted by inequality unlike today. Thank you so much, uh, both of you. I, I think um, uh, what I take away is that we cannot believe in a transformative um, I mean, uh, believe in transformation, but we also have to realize that we are uh, human and a part of nature. And yeah, I mean, there are, uh, we have to believe in solidarity. Uh, thank you so much for joining. And um, if there are any readings or links that you would like to share with our readers, please send them to us. Uh, we'll put them along with the podcast. Thank you.